This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. You know, what we're doing is charging people based off their gross revenue. Uh, and so, you know, maybe you're a startup and you make a million dollars. You still have to pay your taxes even if you're operating at a loss. And I think that's preventing startups and small businesses, minority-owned businesses from taking root. So if we can figure out a different way to get revenue to lower that rate so that we can have more people becoming entrepreneurs and starting small businesses, which are really the backbone of our economy and are more likely to keep their employees in time of recession, that would be a really good thing to do. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. Today is June 16th, and it's basically like my last week of school. I went into my classroom today and uh, cleaned up. It was my first time being in there in three months. And I kind of looked around the room at how my classroom looked frozen in ember in March. We had on the whiteboard a list of the candidates who were running for president as of the last day that we were in school and a dropped out of the race sticker on folks who had dropped out like Cory Booker and Julian Castro. The world has changed a lot since March. And one of the things that I kind of want to flush out today is the way in which I personally, and I feel like a lot of folks are being radicalized by the moment, and the way that the current uh, lineup of Democratic politicians and policymakers in Washington State and elsewhere is not up, is not up to the job of the moment. Uh, my guest today is Charlotte Mena, and Charlotte is a candidate for the 29th Legislative District uh, in Washington State. And that means she's going to be serving, if elected, South Tacoma, uh, parts of East Tacoma, uh, Parkland. And that district is one of the most racially diverse and also most densely black districts in Washington state. And also uh, is basically at the bottom of every ranking that like matters from uh, health expectancy to voter turnout. I'm thinking about this because... This current moment of national ineptness and brokenness is really highlighting to me how important local government is. Essentially, like at the national level, there are no ideas and solutions coming. The coronavirus is still in its first wave, essentially, and basically we've all decided to go ollie ollie oxen free and walk back out in the public because we got bored in quarantine. There's no real attention span, it seems like, in American politics, and like our federal government seems incapable of, of solving long-term and short-term problems like the coronavirus and, frankly, climate change. And because of all this, I think that local government's more important than ever. But the local government that we have, in many cases, is not up to the task at hand or like lacks the vision. In particular, this race matters to me, and I'm going to mention it in the episode, because the house that is my home of record, uh, my home in Tacoma that I intend to return to one day, is located in basically East Tacoma and South Tacoma, kind of on the border in a 
uh, a census tract called Hillsdale, but nobody calls it that. It's East Tacoma, basically. Uh, when I bought the house in 2011, it was in the 29th and was redistricted out of the 29th uh, in the last round of redistricting. But like this, this show and my passion about local politics is driven in many ways by the events and my living in that neighborhood. And so given all of that, I really want to have an intentional conversation about getting the right people elected to local office. And so this conversation with Charlotte Mena is going to be about why she believes she's the right person to serve on the 29th and why she thinks that she should replace Steve Kirby, who's the current incumbent. And so you're going to hear two people in this conversation who I think for the most part agree on the issues have an exchange about the urgency of the moment, the urgency of action. If at the end of this interview, you like what you hear from Charlotte, even if you don't live in the 29th, I'm going to encourage you to go online and make a political contribution to her campaign because she is fighting against the Washington state political establishment and has her work cut out for her and an uphill slide to elected office. But I have no doubt in my mind that she's the right person for this, for, for, for this, for this seat. So with, with all my yammering and like context and like emotional upsetness, frankly, at this moment, listen to the damn show. I just want to get right into things. Uh, what's your story and why are you running for office right now? Yeah, thanks for asking. So uh, I grew up in eastern Washington. My parents are immigrant farm workers. They worked their way up from Mexico, picking in the fields, strawberries, cherries. Um, they actually met at the meatpacking plant in eastern Washington. Um, you know, and I didn't learn to speak English until I started school. Um, and, you know, it was it was different. I felt like I had to work a lot harder than my peers just to get through high school. But I'm really proud, you know, with a lot of hard work and some critical social supports that I became the first person in my family to graduate from college. And since then, I've dedicated my career to public service, working in the U.S. Congress, working in the state legislature for our governor and now in his cabinet. And, you know, I chose the 29th as a place to really start my life and my family with my partner. And being here, you know, and looking around, I see that there's a lot more that we can be doing. I mean, at the end of the day, we all want quality of life. And there's just too many barriers for people in the 29th to achieve that. And now we're seeing those problems exacerbated by COVID-19. Um, whether it's, you know, health disparities, racial disparities, economic disparities. And I think we need a champion who's not afraid to take bold steps and speak for the people that live in the 29th. What do you mean by bold steps? Like, what does bold steps look like to you? Well, I think it's clear that our current economic system is not working and is exclusionary and keeps certain people out. One of the things we can do is take major tax reform. And I think this year is the perfect year to do that, right? Sometimes in chaos, there's opportunity to make sweeping change, and we're not going to get that chance again. 2021 is the year as we're going into major cuts and rebuilding our system in a way that is more equitable. And 2022, it, it's not going to be there, right? That's an election year for people. So politically speaking, this is the time to do that. And who do we want at the table? Do we want folks that are going to be progressive and advocate for progressive tax reform, who are going to advocate for beefing up our social services, or who are going to be there advocating for business interests? This conversation is important to me for selfish reasons. Uh, my address of record back in the U.S. is a house in East Tacoma, and my house was in the 29th until the last round of redistricting when it moved into the 27th. But the students who I taught in Tacoma largely lived in the 29th. Uh, 
I wonder, I, so I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about this and my listener is more informed than the typical person about politics, but maybe doesn't know all the geography of the 29th. Uh, if you're elected to the 29th, who will you be serving? Like what's the geography of that district and who, and who lives there? Yeah, so it includes South Tacoma, Parkland, Spanaway, and East Lakewood. Um, and it's a, an incredibly racially diverse district by Washington state standards. So we're almost 50% people of color um, and our student population is actually majority students of color. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit, I would say it's one of the most um, underserved communities in Washington state. At least 20% of the folks that live here um, make $25,000 or less in terms of household income. And just for, you know, for metrics sake, um, the Housing and Urban Development website will say that you need at least 58000 to afford a two-bedroom apartment. So we're looking at, you know, housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, difficulties accessing health care. We've got four school districts um, that lie, you know, at least partially within the 29th. And um, most of those school districts are at least 60 percent or above um, student body have are, are enrolled in free and reduced lunch. So for Franklin Pierce, it's almost 80 percent. So there's definitely a critical need uh, not only to invest in services that will help people uh, as they're, you know, working through school um, and, you know, working through, you know, maybe building a career, but also just rethinking how are we preparing people uh, to step into this role, to step into the jobs of tomorrow? And is this just going to be a cycle or are we able to interrupt that cycle by making really big investments on the front end? You know, whether it's like early learning. So, for example, right, like early learning so kids can build like a really big and strong foundation for school. Is it um, like the Supreme Court has ruled that the state of Washington has fulfilled its obligation to fully and fairly fund basic, basic education, but they simply haven't. Right. It's not equitable mm. across the state. And there's a lot more we need to do to close the opportunity gap. You probably know this better than I do, but, you know, the graduation rates for students of color, black students, Native American students, Latino students, and low-income students still trail behind the national average. And we're just not going to close that achievement gap unless we put in the proper resources, unless we rethink, you know, how are we hiring uh, diverse teachers with various backgrounds? How are we training every single person who works on a school campus to serve every student, regardless of race, background, and gender identity? Um, do we have enough mental behavioral health service counselors so we're not putting the burden on teachers to deal with every single kind of issue? Um, all that kind of stuff, special education, tutoring, you know, uh, translation services for parents. Um, how are we serving English language learners? And that's a really personal one for me because um, starting school without speaking English, you know, I had to work one-on-one -on -one with a teacher um, and it was a really isolating experience where I couldn't communicate with my classmates and fell behind. And we have other options, right? We have dual language programs. We can invest in those and make sure that those are available for students in various school districts. So obviously you're passionate about these issues and passionate about like serving this community. I'm curious, what was your process in deciding to run for office? Uh, did you, is there like a catalyzing incident and how did we reach this point where you decided that you need to run right now? Yeah, that's actually a really wild question because, you know, coming from an immigrant family, um, I didn't even know when I took my first job in government that like members of Congress had staff. I didn't know that was a job that you could have. I didn't know that running for office was a viable option for me. 
Um, and I think it's a lot of our kids don't see themselves in those positions either. But I think over the course of serving in government for the last 10 years, it's become really apparent that people like us are missing from the conversation, right? So you'll be the only person, I have been the only person in the room uh, when we talk about really important things like, you know, how do we respond to family separation policy? I served as deputy director for Governor Inslee on federal and interstate affairs. And it was, you know, during the year of 2018, when we saw some of the nastiest Trump policies that came about, right? Public charge, family separation, cuts to Title 10, nasty environmental rollbacks that are going to create more pollution in communities that can least afford it, like the 29th. Um, so during that time, you know, we're talking about what's the legal strategy? How can we prevent family separation? How many kids are in Washington? Are the parents at the Northwest Detention Center? And I just kind of stopped, you know, and, and it was a really heavy moment for me thinking about, you know, that could be me, that could be my brother, that could be my cousin. And I just said, wait a minute, like, first of all, do the DSHS employees that are with them, do they speak Spanish? What if the kids don't feel well? Like, is someone, do we know? And they were like, that's a really great question. Um, we hadn't thought about that. And so when you have an experience like that, it illuminates the need for various voices at the table. And I understand that my experience is not universal, but what I do know is that we need to be there and that I'm going to be the person that makes room for other folks to be there. Um, I think that this moment in time just, I think it just felt like the right moment um, because like you say, there's, there's lots of talent in the 29th and there's lots of people that are really well-equipped to serve but there are a few that are willing to um, take the risk of taking on an incumbent. And so I think, you know, I'm willing. I know that I can do a good job for this district. I think I'm best equipped to serve this district of all the candidates for this moment in time. And I want to be, um, I want to take that risk because I want to empower other people to take that risk. And I think we're not going to change the system until we start, you know, taking our shots at it and seeing how far we can go. I'm somebody who enjoys the idea of insurgent runs fr from the left against establishment candidates. And I think this is the way that we get change. Uh, I can't help. We're having this conversation, for the record, on June 16th. And so we're having this conversation in the midst of the wave of protests that are striking uh, the United States in response to police violence and police killings. I can't help but notice that basically every major city that's having a protest has a Democratic uh, mayor and a larger Democratic city council. And so, like, just because somebody's a Democrat doesn't mean that they're going to save us or intervene in these policies and do the right thing on behalf of justice. Like, long way of saying that we need better Democrats than Democrats that we have. Longer way of kind of getting to this next idea that, like, Steve Kirby has been in the Washington State Legislature since 2001. Uh, in my various roles as an education advocate, I've met with him and I've uh, lobbied him. Uh, even before he was on the city council, sorry, on, in the legislature, he served on the city council. Uh, he might have been on the county council too. Like, I don't have his resume in front of me because I don't care that much. But, like, Steve Kirby is a South Tacoma political institution in a way that's even, like, more so than Clan uh, Average. I mean, Clan Lonergan. Sorry, I misspoke there. Uh, why, in particular, did you decide to run against this incumbent Democrat? And why do you think that it is time for him to be replaced? I think he's taken a lot of votes that are not in line with the values of the district. Um, I think that additionally, it's it's like you say, it's it's not just about being a Democrat, right? It's about what, what kind of Democrat we have is really important. And it's not just about the votes you take and, and you know, paying lip service to issues or having 100% on the scorecard. It's what are you leading on? 
what are you what are you actually championing? What in the past 20 years has improved? Have the have the rates of homelessness improved in the last 10 years, 20 years? No. Right? Are are our students better off? Are people making more money? Are they making enough? Like we can look at the data and say, okay, here's here's what happened under your watch for the last 20 years. And do we want more of the same? Because we're definitely not going to get new results until we elect new leaders, right? We can't do the same thing over and over again and say things are going to be dramatically different. But it also isn't just about votes. I think if there's anything we learned, um, at least during the Trump administration, and, and I would say under the Obama administration, it's what you're saying and the culture that you're building really matters, right? Like whether you're saying you belong here, um, this is a district, I am a representative that is here for everyone, regardless of you know your gender identity, regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of your immigration status, that matters. And by ignoring these people, I think we're just saying, okay, well, you know, these people who regularly vote are doing fine, so we're doing fine. And that's just not the case, right? The 29th, as you probably know very well, has one of the lowest voter turnouts of any district in the state. And I almost think that's by design, right? Like people will say that we are, um, you know, disengaged and apathetic. And I don't think that's true. I think what happens when you don't engage people regularly, when you don't have town halls regularly, when you don't send mailers, when you're not out there in the community, is people don't see their government showing up for them. So they think, why would I vote? It's not going to make a difference. And it perpetuates a vicious cycle. So my vision, my dream for this area is that we continue to talk to voters, whether it's election year or not, that we're bringing them resources. Like we say, oh, hey, look, the new Department of uh, Children, Youth and Families was just built. I'm going to bring them here for a community forum so that you guys know what's available to you, right? That we continue to have community barbecues as soon as we're able to and tell people about the census and why it matters to them. And that we're doing this all the time. Because I think when we put you know, voting power back into the hands of people and we arm them with information, they're going to make choices that are good for them. And it's going to be a totally different place. There's some implied criticism there that I think is valid about engagement. And so you mentioned like the lack of uh, mailing and lack of communication that's come from the incumbent in the office. Uh, what is your plan and strategy? You mentioned the barbecues to like engage and foment political activity. Because one of the things as an educator that I see is, is I see a like adult establishment that says like, kids are apathetic about politics should care more. Like, why aren't kids engaged in politics? Why don't kids vote? And then when I, and then I see simultaneously like oceans of children leading protests and coming out and advocating on issues. And then those same folks going, well, not like that. That's not how we want you to engage. And right. so I hear your criticism about Kirby's engage, about Kirby's engagement with the community. I nod and agree. Uh, what's your vision for engaging, particularly the youth in that district on the issues that you're passionate about? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, I'm actually just very impressed with Generation Z or the Zoomers, as they call them, right? Like they are yeah, taking they're, they're dope for real. Yeah, they're, dope. Yeah. they are taking matters into their own hands. They're organizing. They are able to build sustained movements. It's incredible. So I think all of this is about meeting people where they are. Right. If we want to talk to our seniors, we're going to have to visit the senior centers and we're going to have to put, you know, our information in the senior newspapers that, you know, Newsweek so on and so forth. We want to talk to young people. We have to meet them where they are. Right now, they're on social mm -hmm. media, right? They're tapped into everything from TikTok to Twitter. Uh, but at the same time, there's already coalitions, right? Pierce County Young Democrats, Sunrise Tacoma, um, Black Lives Matter. We need to be showing up in those places, right? And, there, and this is across the board for people that are not maybe 
Generation Z, but folks that are plugged into the Asian American Pacific Cultural Center, folks that are plugged into Latinos United for South Sound and the Black Collective. It's like, we need to be there and we need to be uh, engaging them, asking folks like, what are the needs in your community and showing up to the events that they already have. As well as, you know, as a legislator, I think it's incumbent upon those in office to be available. There were zero town halls held this year, right? We need to make sure that we're having those and that we're telling people where they can find us, that we have regular open office hours in the district, um, and that it's not like a process for someone to think about who is my state legislator and how do I find them? A couple of different times in this conversation, we've touched an idea there's like different kinds of Democrats. Um, I think we saw that play out a lot through this interminable, still not over election process. Like, Jesus, I cannot believe the election still hasn't happened yet. I feel like we've been doing this since effing 1927. Like, okay, so my frustration aside, I I feel, well, actually, let's back up. When I teach about government politics in uh, here in UAE, I explain to students that America has a two-party system, but in actuality, there are more like five parties that are kind of exist, exist in two systems. So I would say that like within the Republican coalition, there are uh, small government, anti-federalist, uh, traditional, like, uh, small C, your uncle, cons- well, not your uncle or my uncle, but somebody's white <laughs> uncle conservatives. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. And then there are uh, David Brooks style country club moderate Republicans that still exist. Uh, Charlie Sykes is out there. Alex P. Keaton, George Will. And then there's like the Trumpian, like fascist wing of the party. And so like those three constituencies kind of all exist. On the Democratic side, uh, there's an establishment wing, it seems like, an anti-establishment wing, and then somewhere in the middle, like a liberal technocrat wing. So the establishment wing is like the uh, Joe Biden, Pete, uh, Amy Klobuchar wing of the party. Uh, The technocratic wing is the I listen to too many podcasts, uh, Ezra Klein, arguably Elizabeth Warren, and uh, (laughs) Julian Castro wing. Frankly, that's the wing I think I belong to, but that's neither here nor there. And then the anti-establishment wing is like the Sanders AOC wing of the party, if that makes sense. Yeah. So long, long kind of walk through. The yeah. Democrats have a establishment wing, a liberal technocrat wing, and a uh, anti-establishment wing that is progressive. In, and that's three wings, by the way. Three wings you can't fly, but that's, that's bad business. <laughs> All that said, into which one of those wings do you think that you belong and why do you think you belong there? That's a really interesting question. Um, I suppose I would have to, in those categories, align myself with more of the Julian Castro's and Elizabeth Warren's. And I'll admit, you know, I I voted for Elizabeth Warren in the Washington state primary. Um, But I think that the longer that I'm in this process, the more I get pushed further out into the Sanders, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wing. And I think it's because we're not really given an option here, right? Like I came into this race thinking that we were going to be able to run a fair, and positive campaign and the process was going to just totally work and I was going to go and compete for endorsements and everything was going to be, you know, just great. But that's not really how things work, right? There's uh, a system in place to keep those that are already in office in power. Um, And it's built around like everybody supporting each other and maintaining the status quo. And so as we go out and try to compete for endorsements and then we, you know, hear responses like, well, we were pressured by, you know, the party and the leadership that we better not do this, you start to realize, oh my gosh, like there is. Wait, no wait, way. wait, wait. Do you want to name names there? I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, I'm not, we I were do pressured. not. I do not. Okay. Okay. I do, All not. Right. All right. I do not. 
maybe yet. Um, Fair enough. Keep going. Yeah. And so you kind of start to realize, all right, this, I can't win playing their game. Right. And so you, it kind of starts to take root, right. Where you're like, well, actually maybe, maybe we do need to dismantle the system. Maybe we do need to reconsider how this is working for people of color and young women and young people who want to, who want to be in office, who want to, who want to be a part of this. Right. So I think the more that we see that, the more I start to challenge my own thinking of like what is possible and what is impossible. And a good example of that is, you know, I think prior when I would hear um, Medicare for all, I was very confused by the concept of that because Medicare is not Medicaid, right? Medicare is a program for people over the age of 65 and is not nearly as inclusive as the Medicare plans that we hear now, where it's, you know, like the vision and dental and just fully comprehensive coverage, reproductive health care. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm just thinking, how, how can we do that? How could we even come up with the money? How could we fundamentally restructure what we're doing? And where would be the political will when we can't even get enough votes to turn the lights on in Congress, right? So you're thinking about that. And then as I'm reevaluating, um, you kind of think, why shouldn't we be shooting for the thing that we actually want and moving the needle that way? And why shouldn't that be our starting point? And why can't we continue to take steps to get there uh, and see what will happen when the next wave of leadership comes into office? What will Washington state look like in five years when folks that have lived through those difficulties are then at the table and able to make decisions? There's a whole podcast conversation to be had, and maybe I'll have you back about how the particular brand of Trumpian are radicalizing an entire generation of activists and people. And I, I, I nod my head at what you say. It's interesting. So yeah. I'm here in the Arabian Gulf in UAE, mm-hmm. and they've had mm-hmm. universal health care since the 1970s. And so sometimes stepping outside of where you are allows you to see something different for what's possible. And one of the things that like I am pretty sure about is that my mind has changed on Medicare for All and on universal basic income, UBI, yeah. uh, by being here. Because like if we have, this is a, a different podcast episode I'm having in my head right now, but yeah. if we're going to have the economy that we have right now and we're not going to have a safety net, we're going to have premature death. And yep. literally the only way to avoid premature death is to make sure people are provided for. And the current democratic establishment is not advocating for that set of policies. And I think a big chunk of that is, is that they're dependent on the votes of older folks who have UBI through Social Security and have healthcare through Medicare. And so if we can provide those things to the elderly, we can provide them to, to the young is kind of where I'm going with that. Yeah. All right. Agree. I want to take a break here. I want to take a break here. And then when we come back, um, I want to, uh, I'm going to tick through some issues that are uh, on my mind at the moment. And also I'm in particular, I want to get your thoughts on uh, racial equity and environmental justice work. We'll be back. Hi, I'm Melanie Denise Cunningham, your two, five, three peace queen. And I'm Audrey Cunningham. And we're the host of the Channel 253 podcast, What Say You? This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by PeaceWorks United and the Greater Tacoma Community Foundation. And we're here to remind you that the 2020 census is underway and that you, yes, you must participate. That's right. I know people can get nervous when someone from the government shows up with a clipboard. But here's the truth. Participating in the census will help us get our fair share of representatives to Congress, and it will also get more federal funds to our community that we can use on urgent matters, 
like community policing, for instance, and many other things. You don't have to be a voter. You don't have to be a citizen even. In terms of the census, you count. Everyone counts. But you won't count unless you participate. Please take the time. Answer the questions. 10 questions, 10 minutes. Show up for your community. If you haven't completed the census form at this time, please visit census.gov to find out what you need to do now. Thank you to PeaceWorks United and the Greater Tacoma Community Foundation for your sponsorship of Channel 253 and getting the word out about the 2020 Census. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show and giving us a listen. And I want to give you a couple of ways you can support the work we do here at the network and particularly here on Nerd Farmer. My goal is to have conversations that you're not going to hear elsewhere and voices that you're not going to hear in other venues. Uh, this is our 99th episode of the show, and we're heading towards 100. And for the most part, I think we've done a really good job at putting in front of you uh, candidates for office, professors, politicians, journalists, and people and giving points of view that like you need to hear. If you enjoy the show and enjoy the work we're doing, there are two things you can do to help. One, sign up for a membership. Go to channel two five three dot com slash membership. It is four dollars a month or forty dollars a year, and your dollars help us do this work. The other thing you can do is, is go on iTunes, not iTunes, Apple Podcasts nowadays. Go on Apple Podcasts and write a review for the show. Uh, the vast majority of the folks that download the show download it from Apple Podcasts. And if you write a review, uh, it helps people find the show. I know it's cliche. Every host says it, but we say it because it works. The other thing I want to put out for you right now is, is that uh, I just finished reading uh, Know My Name by Chanel Miller, and it's our current Nerd Farm Reads book club. Uh, Chanel Miller's memoir is probably one of the five best memoirs I've read in my entire life. And it's the voice of the uh, person who, sorry, I want to make sure I get this right. So Chanel Miller is the victim of Brock Turner, the Stanford rapist. And in the book, she's claiming her identity as a sexual assault survivor and also putting on trial society in the way that we treat victims of sexual assault. Uh, for me as a male to read this book has been revelatory about the uncomfortableness that women often have uh, walking around in society. And this book deserves your attention. If you have not read the book yet, I'm going to encourage you, go to King's Books uh, or, or online from King's Books. Uh, and tweet about your reading of the book using the hashtag NerdFarmReads. We're going to record our conversation about this book about two weeks from the day this episode comes out. So if, you've, if you're reading right now, finish reading. And if you want to read, you have two weeks to read. All right. Uh, let's get back to this conversation. One reason that I am excited about your campaign is, is that we have an opportunity to take the 29th legislative district from 2018 to now from being David Sawyer, whose story is known, has been talked about plenty on this network, and Steve Kirby to you and Melanie Morgan. That, that's transformational change. Like that's, that, is, that is like what the community needs. In particular, though, I want to know, or I, or I, I want, I want to hear you kind of, kind of talk about what in particular are you going to bring to the table that's different than Steve is bringing around issues of racial justice and issues of. Well, let's start with that. With racial justice, let's start with that. What will we get differently from you that we're getting from Steve? Yeah. Well, I think 
we all understand that race plays a role in determining our education outcomes, our health outcomes, our ability to buy a home. I mean, really across the board, right? This is a factor uh, in outcomes for various aspects of our life. And I think that's been largely ignored, right? So I think having someone who understands that and is willing to elevate the voices of those that are at the center of these issues, including police violence, is going to make a really big difference. A lot of times, you know, we've been talking about these issues for a really long time. We've been screaming about these issues and they were very easily ignored. We are living Mm -hmm. a moment, a movement in time where we cannot be ignored, right? We have people that are completely organized, that are that are going out every single day, almost every single day, at least throughout the Seattle-Tacoma area, and are demanding justice and change. And that cannot be ignored. So when we've been talking about racial disparities and health disparities, they're playing out in real time due to the COVID crisis, due to the economic fallout, and we're seeing it now in these marches. I think we need to galvanize this moment to change the course. And I think having someone there who understands how these are factors in our everyday lives to make space uh, for people to come in and tell their stories and to really push their agenda is going to make a really big difference in 2021. What does that look like, particularly policy-wise? Like what policies uh, are you going to advocate for about issues of racial justice? So um, I think we've got a couple of really big issues in the district, um, not the least of which is housing, right? So we've got a growing homelessness population, um, and we've got folks that are barely hanging on by a thread to be able to keep their homes, right? So are we supporting more affordable housing? And what are we doing for the folks that are already experiencing homelessness? I want to push housing first policies, and I want to push permanent supportive housing, because we have this idea, I mean, people just really don't understand what's happening. And they're not understanding that someone um, suffering with addiction is dealing with an illness, right? They want people to be clean and sober before they're able to get a roof over their head. But we wouldn't ask someone who's ill to get better before we can give them the help that they need. So I want to make sure that we understand that. We only have three renters in the entire state legislature. I'm a renter in South Tacoma. I think we need to understand when we take these votes on, you know, whether we're supporting landlords or tenants' rights and passing legislation like just cause eviction or the ban on rent control, that there are people who can really speak to that. So those are just three policies, for example, that have been held up in the legislature that I think need some more umph and support behind it. I'm often struck by how little people seem to understand the intersection of racial justice and environmental issues. And one of the like drums that I've beaten repeatedly is, is that people of color and low-income families are disproportionately impacted by, by environmental toxins, pollutions, and crises. But then if you look at the advocates in the environmental community, uh, Los Blancos, right? And so <laughs> what is the work to be done in the legislature around environmental justice, particularly given the fact that the federal government has basically abdicated its responsibility uh, to protect the environment? Yeah, uh, certainly they have abdicated their responsibility and in some ways I think have made it uh, completely worse. Uh, Washington state is a pretty progressive state on environment. So a lot of times we're going to be the loudest about these rollbacks, but we're also going to have state protections, which is really good. Mm. Um, But it has created some disparities and some problems with how we implement these things. That said, um, you will see air pollution concentrated in low income neighborhoods. And that's true of the 29th as well. And so that exacerbates existing health problems, including asthma and diabetes, right? And what's happening now that the COVID crisis, which is an upper respiratory illness, is going around is that we are at higher risk of death simply by living where we do with higher air pollution. 
So, you know, we've seen that um, communities of color, particularly the black community and Latino community are getting and contracting COVID at a higher rate and are also overrepresented in deaths from the disease. And a lot of this is, you know, intersecting with the environment as well. So last year, I mean, I, I currently work at the Department of Ecology. So last year, um, I helped steward a bill called the HEAL Act, which essentially mandates that several state agencies come together in a task force to think about how they incorporate health disparities into their standard decision-making. So whether it's grant-making or whether it's permitting a new project in an area that's already overburdened, which are really great first steps, but I think we need to put some teeth in that so that it's enforceable. And at the same time, I think you know there's, there's several ways that an agency collects funds to be able to, to carry out its work. Um, for example, if there's... Um, a plant, whatever they're making, that um, exceeds its air pollution limits or standards, um, they may get fined. So I want to take a look at what we can do with that money that we collect and how we can reinvest it into our communities. Um, during the Volkswagen uh, air emissions scandal, um, mm. every state got involved and then every state got a settlement amount. And with that settlement amount, um, the Washington State Department of Ecology issued out grants, um, including in Tacoma, for electric school buses. I want to see how we can do that more regularly to lower air pollution in areas like ours. Um, and that's just a first step. Earlier on in the interview, you mentioned tax policy. And it may seem like we're going, like jumping issue to issue, but to me, economic justice, environmental justice, and tax policy are really all the same issue. Yeah. Uh, and there are issues about fairness and justness, justness, and that low-income families, black families in particular, people of color, get the short end of all three. We know that Washington State has the most aggressive tax tax plan or tax like structure in the United States. Uh, wealthy folks in Washington State pay a lower percentage of their of their uh, wealth and income in taxes than anywhere else. Uh, higher income folks pay, sorry, lower income folks like struggle to make ends meet. Effing Idaho has an income tax. And I've read in other places that if Washington State had Idaho's tax structure, like just, just all that being said, we know it's unjust. Uh, what are you bringing to the table on tax policy? Yeah, well, there's two routes, right? I think the ultimate goal that we want is a progressive income tax, right? Like there's no other way around it to make sure that people are paying the appropriate amount. That, as you know, requires a two thirds majority vote to amend the constitution uh, the Washington state constitution to be able to implement that. So we can keep working at that and we can try to elect leaders that are willing to do the right thing. But in the meantime, we're going to have to make changes because we can't continue down this road. Right. Um, so I want to, I want to support a capital gains tax, um, a capital gains excise tax, which basically means that, you know, if you make profit off of something that you sell over a certain amount, and I think there's been different numbers thrown around the state legislature, whether it's 500,000, 250,000, so on, um, the state gets a percentage of that. Um, I think we also have the ability to implement a 1% income tax across the board per the case that was settled. I think that we can do a 1% income tax across the board and use that to buy down the sales tax rate so that folks are paying something a little bit more evenly. So those are things, like I said, that we're probably going to have the opportunity to do this year um, and think about, you know, how are we structuring B&O taxes? Uh, are we, you know, B&O taxes, I think, I think people are often up in arms about 
these are really regressive and like we've got all these tax loopholes. But at the same time, you know, what we're doing is charging people based off their gross revenue. Uh, and so, you know, maybe you're a startup and you make a million dollars. You still have to pay your taxes, even if you're operating at a loss. And I think that's preventing startups and small businesses, minority-owned businesses from taking root. So if we can figure out a different way to get revenue to lower that rate so that we can have more people becoming entrepreneurs and starting small businesses, which are really the backbone of our economy and are more likely to keep their employees in time of recession, that would be a really good thing to do. I can't help but notice you mentioned capital gains taxes. And listeners to this show who've been with us for a while know that Speaker Jenkins is actually the guest or the person who's appeared on the show the most number of times. She's an advocate for capital gains. I'm wondering, what is your relationship with Speaker Jenkins and has she endorsed your campaign? Um, we've met before at events, um, you know, women's events, sort of political events around, we don't know each other very well. Um, when I worked in the state legislature, the legislature, I worked on the Senate side. So a majority of my relationships are with the senators there. Um, she has actually in her new role as speaker of the house, um, supported the incumbent. Lori, if you're listening, this person is a vote for the issues that you care about. So I understand that politics is difficult and that like people have loyalty to incumbents, but that's disappointing to hear. I'm probably gonna have to edit this all out right now. Fuck. All right. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, one of the one of the questions that came in when I asked for questions was somebody asking about your values, and I think that we've talked through your values, and I people know where you're coming from. So instead of asking about your values, I want to ask you this. If you get elected, who is going to be your accountability group? Who's going to like check you on your own BS if like you start thinking, if you, if you become uh, lost as an insider in Olympia politics? <laughs> I love that question. Um, I love that question. I think we have. Uh, all right. So I'll just give you a very honest answer, which is um, I've got a great group of uh, friends that are staff in the legislature and I honestly think, you know, any any elected member will tell you that staff really make the world go round. You know, staff are the ones that write the nuance of the policy. They write your talking points. They tell you where to go and who to meet with. And having that experience, I think, really roots you in like how this process really works and what is and isn't possible. Um, I think. I think having folks who are rooted in their communities who are doing this work and who see like, you know, this member pop up and say this, this member pop up and say this just really keeps you grounded. Um, we, uh, yeah, I, I won't get into, uh, into any bad stories like I was thinking of, but I think staff is the appropriate, <laughs> staff is the appropriate people to knock you down a peg. And luckily I have friends who are never afraid to knock me down a peg if I need to. So, um, I think that I think that's right. And a lot of them or some of them at least live in the 29th as well. How about community members as well? Are there community folks who you depend on? Because one of the uh, one of my, my kind of core beliefs is is like you can tell a lot about an elected official by the people who they bring to the table. And so are there particular populations in the community who you're going to bring to the table and have hold you accountable? Yeah. So, like I said, I've been sort of trying to get uh do outreach to our various community groups, including folks that are at the Latinos United for South Sound. One of the women there is also um, the founder of the Tacoma Women of Color Collective. I've got folks on my campaign steering committee that are 
with the LGBTQ community and also work in state government. And so these are folks that I trust to sort of steer me in the right direction and that I will keep um, in my corner as I do this work. Um, last kind of issue I want to talk about and focus on is the issue that's driving the protests right now in the States and law enforcement. Yeah. I can't help but look and think that American policing is broken writ large. And the moment that we're seeing is radicalizing me in some ways. We're seeing police officers respond to protests about abuse by heaping more abuse on people. Yeah. What for you is the path forward for law enforcement? And I ask this question particular in particular because as an elected official in the 29th, uh, Paul Pastor is on his way out. And Paul Pastor as Pierce County Sheriff is, well, actually here, a little context. I have this weird thing that I do where I kind of put people in boxes and then evaluate them based on the box that I put them in. And so like, I don't look at Paul Pastor and think about, what are Paul Pastor's views compared to my views? I say I have a cop who's in charge of a sheriff's department. Given how awful law enforcement policy tends to be, where is this person in comparison to like where I expect them to be? And so like Paul Pastor is a best case scenario, I want to say, for a, a sheriff of, a, of, a, of a, uh, a law enforcement agency. And whoever replaces him is going to be worse than he is, I think. Uh, similarly, I, I look at somebody like, oh, what's the example I want to do? Uh, I think about Anders Ibsen. So like Anders was, in, in hindsight, I was wrong about Anders twice. Um, Anders is far more a progressive of a person than you would expect to come out of North Tacoma otherwise. And so in his policy execution and policy advocacy from the city council, he was like a check, check bonus from like where I expected him to be. I'm, I'm asking this because I'm thinking about law enforcement. I'm thinking about the work that needs to be done. I'm thinking about the kind of votes in the legislature. Uh, what are your thoughts about how we proceed as a state? Like we already have initiatives in place. We already have uh, I feel like a, a critical mass of protests, but I don't feel like police are changing their practices at all. Yeah, I feel the same way. And like you, I think that, you know, my thinking on this was a little bit more leaning towards police reform, radical police reform. And as I've seen the process play out, um, I do feel like I'm becoming more radicalized and, and interested in the idea of defund. And it's kind of in line with what we talked about with Medicare for All, where you hear a phrase like defund the police and you think like, wait a minute, what, what does that mean? How is that even possible? How can our society continue? No one will ever go for that. Um, I mean, I worked in the Washington state legislature uh, during conversations about initiative 940 when we finally came to agreement mm -hmm. and having everybody sit at the table, association of sheriffs and police chiefs, you know, community members, people who had uh, lost their relatives at the hands of police violence and how difficult it was to come to agreement. And it was a pretty landmark victory, right? Implicit bias training, crisis intervention, de-escalation. There has been an absolute failure to implement that training, at least in the city of Seattle, right? We can see that potentially in other cities, it worked just fine. But obviously, something has to change, right? There's numbers out there showing, okay, if you're a black man in America, uh, one in every 1,000 can be expected to be killed by police, Okay. On average, 
in the United States across America, black Americans are 2.5 times as likely as white Americans to be shot and killed by police officers. And by the way, that rate is higher in Washington state where the rate is 3.2 times more likely. So we're talking about reforms and we're not seeing results. You know, Manny Ellis was killed right in the heart of the 29th and just being there at his vigil and hearing his mom speak about him, hearing his sister speak about him. How many more of these cases do we have to go through before we try something different? Right. Like we continue to implement police reforms. They say, OK, let's ban chokeholds. Let's let's make sure that they can't buy uh, excess military equipment. Well, it's not working. So these, uh, you know, I'm becoming very sensitive to these arguments where people say that, you know, this is a force that was rooted in racism, rooted in protecting white people's property. And it's very hard to to make culture change. It's very hard to root out something that is at the core of the institution. So I think all options are on the table. We are heading into a session where we do need to make budget cuts However, I don't want to get ahead of the black community in, in my district, right? So, like, I want to hear from folks here who are at the center of this to tell me, you know, what is the preferred option? And I will be right there with you shouldering that change. I want to just thank you for coming on this morning for you, evening for me, and being really thoughtful about this. We like to end the show with a thing called the wind down. And so the wind down is an opportunity for you to tune the audience or turn the audience on to a voice that they should be paying attention to. It could be an author. It could be a speaker. It could be like you're just bumping some album right now to death. Uh, who or what is one thing that other folks should be listening to? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I kind of want to make a shout out to our uh, teachers here in Tacoma who led a strike yesterday in a march for uh, reform to benefit students of color. And I think right now is, a, is an important time that we're listening to our teachers. I mean, they're there every single day with these students and are calling for uh, a repeal of zero tolerance policies that are perpetuating the school to prison pipeline. I think right now when we have folks that are being activists who are not normally in this position, those are the folks that I want to be listening to, people that are on the ground doing this work every single day. Charlotte, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. If people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Uh, I'm on all the socials. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Elect Charlotte. We've got a Spanish Facebook page as well as an English Facebook page. We're also on Instagram at Elect Charlotte. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. He has an expression when you talk to him, like, one-on-one, that, like, he enjoys the smell of his own farts. Yeah. Like, honestly. Yeah, he was. Yeah, so. he didn't know what the f- he was doing, and and um, and he was a little ass. L-O-L. But I'll just let that go. You, <laughs> you don't need to address that, Charlotte. Yeah, I think we just found the blooper, by She's, the way. she's right. raising her glasses and wiping her eyes. <laughs> Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.